0: So till Vedanta came to Niyamgiri, no government considered the development, they did not talk about development of tribals. So when they came, they say that we will develop everything for tribals. So our question is what development you will make. made? For last 60 or 70 years, you did not do anything. And when you are coming to take everything from this, and these people asked also, you know, then one tribal, I remember this tribal that is um, Daising Machi asked the collector the time um, uh, when the land was to be taken he came to for land he asked who are you to take our land
1: that was the voice of Prafulla Samantra the environmental and social justice activist from Odisha in eastern India I am Aju John and you are listening to the Nagrik podcast where we learn together to become better at participating in public life. Even in a career in public life that has already spanned five decades, the date of April 18th, 2013, holds special significance for Prufulla Samantra. Later in this podcast, we will come back to Mr. Samantra and why that is so. But on that day, Three judges of the Supreme Court said that the Union government's permission for a mining project in the Nyamgiri hills of Odisha, a mandatory requirement under Indian federal law, could only be given after taking the consent of the gram sabhas or the village councils of the region. Shomona Khanna, the Delhi-based advocate who has taught this judgment several times in the year since then, can tell us more.
2: The interesting thing is that uh, although there is a large body of environmental and forest laws which ought to have Protected this land, uh, all those uh, uh, challenges uh, continued to fail over the years. Uh, very interestingly, some of my friends were involved in that litigation, and it was interesting to see how uh, every step of the way they would just keep losing and not giving up. That's also a very important thing to learn from this case. Uh, but eventually, when the uh, matter came up in the Supreme Court and the issue, of the Forest Rights Act was brought up. Uh, This argument somehow resonated with the court and uh, after hearing detailed arguments including from the Solicitor General for India and a wide array of senior advocates representing the corporations, the state government and also of course the tribal group um, and civil society. uh, the. Supreme Court passed a three-judges bench decision which has actually become a a benchmark for the Forest Rights Act and also for the uh, 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 law around Adivasi rights in India. In short, what the court said was, after examining the entire constitutional and statutory framework around Adivasi rights and forest rights in India, including the history of the Forest Rights Act and how it came into being, the court came to this conclusion that without consulting the Gram Sabha of forest dwellers, forest clearance cannot be granted by the central government for a particular forest that is traditionally that villages. Now, the very interesting part of this case is that at that point of time those uh, primitive tribal group called the Dongaria Kones had actually not filed their claims under the Forest Rights Act yet. But because it was well known and well understood that they have existing rights which are ancient rights over that lands, those lands, the Supreme Court actually directed the uh, central government and the state government to go back to that Gram Sabha, those Gram Sabhas and ask them, and dis- that the decision making regarding the forest clearance finally rests with that gram sabha.
1: To understand this judgement, we need to first go through some of the fundamentals. Such as the relationship between the Indian state and the country's forests and its forest-dwelling people. For that, we need to dial back a bit, quite a bit in fact, to the colonial exploitation of Indian forests to feed the industrial revolution. Regular listeners of the Nagrik Podcast will be familiar with the voice of Sharachandra Lele, a distinguished Fellow in Environmental Policy and Governance at ATRI, the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment.
3: So, in this complicated relationship between people and forests, you have the state intervening at various points. In the Indian context and in many uh, tropical or uh, let's say countries of the global south, the colonial period is a very important and very dramatic shift in the role of the state. So till then you have uh, say uh, kings or, or you know, uh, different kinds of rulers who have some uh, interest in the forest which is beyond the interest of the local communities. They might say a particular area is to be uh, reserved for hunting or a particular species is not to be touched by local communities but beyond that they did not really interfere in the day-to-day use and management of the forest and they did not have forest departments it's the colonial period where initially the colonial government had subcontracted all the uh, timber extract exp- exploitation to uh, private contractors quickly saw that it was not going to be very sustainable the contractors were doing a very uh, quick and dirty kind of job uh, and therefore, in the 1850s in India, you have the beginnings of the Indian Forest Department set up by the colonial government or the British government. Uh, and they, because the British government believed in sort of uh, putting a veneer of law on top of whatever they were doing, they re- primarily wanted to exploit forests for state purposes, for colonial purposes, as a source of revenue, as a source of timber for shipbuilding, as a source of timber for uh, uh, expanding the railroad network as a source of softwood and resin for industry and so on and so forth. So that was really the purpose of the colonial rulers to appropriate forests for the produce that they provide. Uh, At the same time to give it a veneer of law, they passed the uh, first Indian Forest Act in 1878, where basically they empowered the state officially to go and acquire uh, forest land and to make it into state forest. And that is the beginning of a very different kind of approach of the state towards forest which is primarily driven by colonial needs to appropriate uh, forest land in order to control it and thereby, thereby to exploit it in a very substantial way. Uh, that also brings about a, a big transformation in the forest uh, quality or the type of forest, the ecology of the forest, because in order to meet industrial needs, uh, they start cutting down natural forests wholesale and replanting with timber species or softwood species. So you see both a change in the jurisdiction the uh, bureaucratic power and an associated ecological change on the landscape. And in order to achieve this, people have to be excluded. Because in a very densely populated country, uh, historically uh, populated by people living in different parts of uh, the forested landscape, people are entering the forest on a daily basis. And this would be inimical to the state's colonial state's interests, of appropriating the forest. That's why they created these two categories, reserve forest and protected forest. The reserve forest being where they had full control and protected forest where they did not exert full control. They allowed some amount of people's use, but they were always at liberty to uh, restrict use as and when they uh, wanted. So they created these two categories as two levels of protection, but the intent was single, which is to convert the forest into a source of revenue and uh, material resource for the state's needs, the colonial state's needs to begin with. Post-independence, that relationship unfortunately did not change. The colonial state is replaced by a supposedly democratic uh, Indian government. Uh, The purpose of forest exploitation only shifted from meeting the colonial state's needs to now meeting the needs of a newly independent India which believed in uh, uh, industrialization and progress based upon that and therefore again continued to see the forest as a source of raw materials for industry. And that relationship has continued primarily till uh, today. The shift that has happened in the 1970s is that because of the uh, emergence of conservation or wildlife or biodiversity as new concerns uh, on the landscape and the diminishing importance of forest based produce in the broad uh, uh, industrial growth of the country, you see that the relationship now is more of uh, the forest departments calling themselves as conservationists. Uh, talking about the environment and saying they are the protectors of forests because they are protecting forests for the sake of the public good, the environmental benefits that forests provide to the nation as a whole, whether it's catchment uh, forests, whether it is biodiversity, wildlife. Now, the latest uh, added uh, uh, phrase is carbon sequestration. In the era of climate change, forests now have carbon value. Therefore, the Forest Department says we are providing carbon sequestration services the nation and to the globe. So these are different ways of justifying the continued control of the state over forest resources. So that approach has not really changed. Some minor tweaks have taken place over time.
1: The Indian Forest Act, 1927, gives Indian governments powers over forest land. Forest land can be used for infrastructural projects like power plants and roads, mines, and even development projects such as schools and hospitals. But thanks to the Forest Conservation Act of 1980, which does not by itself ban any such activity on forest land, state governments are now required to first secure the union government's permission before it authorizes any of these changes to the use of forests. The procedure for seeking the central government's approval under the Forest Conservation Act is set out under the forest conservation rules. Decision-making about the use of the country's diverse and far-flung, if you will excuse my alliteration, forests, had to happen as a result of the Forest Conservation Act in the national capital. But as India moved from the colonial period to independence, there was another important factor that supported greater participation of forest-dwelling communities and particularly tribals in the governance of the country's forests. That was the Constitution of India.
2: Most people when they talk about the constitutional provisions relating to forest dwellers, adivasis, scheduled areas, they start with article 244 and the fifth schedule. Uh, I do believe that it's really important to actually go back to the fundamental rights chapter and start there because one of the most important Uh, aspects of our constitution is that it has a very, very nuanced and a very, very progressive approach to the notion of equality itself. The right to equality under our constitution has been clearly written down not as one of formal equality, not as one that simply uh, focuses on treating everybody equally and then leaving people to their own devices but it's a substantive equality approach. There is a clear burden on the state and there is clear fundamental rights in the people that uh, those who have been historically discriminated against, those who have been historically marginalized must be provided with special protections, must be provided with special help from the state which could be in the nature of special laws, it could be in the nature of special schemes, it should, could be in the nature of even special protections at the cost of other communities uh, in order to ensure that these historical injustices are undone and to bring uh, people to a place where we have equality of result. So, the Uh, recognizing the fact that India is a country where there have been many many histories of discrimination not just against Adivasis in fact but against many different other ethnic communities, Dalits, women, disabled people. So, there is a recognition of a substantive equality approach. This substantive equality approach actually informs all the laws and and all the legislations that have been created and even the constitutional provisions themselves when they relate to the uh, Adivasi communities and the Adivasi homelands. So, now let's come to the whole issue of scheduled areas. So, article 244 the, uh, states that the fifth schedule areas will be governed by the provisions in that schedule. Uh, The fifth schedule areas are declared and actually were declared in 1950 uh, by a presidential order. There are today uh, 10 states in the country which have uh, scheduled areas, they have special protections under the constitution and uh, one of the most important uh, aspects of the scheduled area concept in the Indian constitution is that these areas. they, they foreground the rights over land and resources of the tribal populations in those areas and even sometimes it may be at the cost of the non-tribal populations who may be living or working in those areas. And this is a very important constitutional protection that has been given to tribal homelands because uh, across the colonial period, And even in the post-colonial period, egregious examples are there of non-tribal populations entering into uh, tribal areas, taking uh, taking, uh, a hideous advantage of their uh, simplicity, their lack of Uh, uh, knowledge of how the legal systems and how paperwork uh, happens and uh, uh, taking control of tribal lands by uh, simply making a fool out of the tribal peoples and uh, then then actually converting uh, those tribal populations into uh, bonded labour or or all kinds of uh, other kind of oppressions that take place financial and uh, social oppressions. So, the constitution makers and subsequent to that uh, the, even the independent India's uh, parliament recognized that there is a need to protect tribal homelands and the right to land and resources in tribal areas which are defined under the constitution as scheduled areas.
1: Another milestone in the recognition of the self governing position of tribal and Adivasi people in the Indian Republic was when the Parliament modified for scheduled areas the application of the principles of local self government. Local self government in India means units of government below the level of state governments that govern with autonomy over some matters. At the time of its adoption, the only mention of local self government in the Constitution of India was in Article 40 in a non-enforceable directive principle of state policy which said, The state shall take steps to organize village panchayats and endow them with such powers and authority as may be necessary to enable them to function as units of self-government. In 1992, the 73rd amendment added part 9 of the constitution titled the panchayats. It created across India three tiers of panchayats at the village, intermediate and district levels and set out the framework for how states could constitute them. It also recognized Gram Sabhas or village councils. Gram Sabhas are bodies comprising all the people registered in the electoral rolls relating to a village within the area of a single panchayat at the village level. Within a year of the amendment, all states were expected to modify their laws to remove any conflict with Part 9. Some parts of the country, however, were specifically excluded from the application of the provisions of Part 9. Part 9 would not apply to the so-called Scheduled Areas until the Parliament specifically made a law extending these provisions with necessary modifications to those areas. The Panchayat's Extension to Scheduled Areas Act of 1996 or PESA was the law made by Parliament for this purpose. It extended the provisions of Part 9 of the Constitution to the scheduled areas and the nine states that contained these areas, namely Andhra Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Gujarat, Himachal Pradesh, Jharkhand, Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, Orissa and Rajasthan. These states were to enact suitable laws to implement Part 9 and the Pesa. Unlike the provisions of Part 9 of the Constitution, the Pesa gave a central role to Gramsabhas. In scheduled areas, therefore, every habitation or a group of habitations or a hamlet or a group of hamlets comprising a community and managing its affairs in accordance with traditions and customs must have a separate Gram Sabha or village council. It recognized several powers of the Gram Sabha, including its powers to safeguard and preserve the traditions and customs of the people, their cultural identity, community resources and the customary mode of dispute resolution, manage minor water bodies and approve plans for projects taken up for implementation at the panchayat level. Consultation with the Gram Sabhas was made mandatory for the acquisition of any land for development projects and before the resettlement or rehabilitation of project affected people in those areas. No prospecting license, mining lease, or concession for the exploitation of minor minerals can be granted in scheduled areas without the recommendation of the Gram Sabha or Panchayats at the appropriate level. Yet another milestone in this history of democratizing the governance of India's forests was the passing of the Scheduled Tribes and other traditional forest dwellers, Recognition of Forest Rights Act 2006, known as the Forest Rights Act. This law granted Scheduled Tribes and other forest dwellers the right to cultivate forest land, collect and dispose of minor forest produce other than timber, use grazing land and water bodies, and protect and manage their forests. After this law, no project could be carried out in Indian forests without the approval of Gram Sabhas. A few years before this law came into being, Prafulla Samantra, from whom we heard before, saw an announcement in a newspaper about a public hearing to discuss bauxite mining in the Nyamgiri hill range situated in the districts of Kalahandi and Raigada in the southwest of Odisha. These hills were also home to the Dongriya Kond people Classified by the government of India as a particularly vulnerable tribal group. These were approximately 8,000 people living across 100 hamlets. They speak the Kui language and worship the Niyam Raja, literally the king of law, who they consider the supreme god of the Niemgiri jungle and the source of all their resources. Having previously campaigned against a similar mine in a neighbouring district, Prafulla understood the capacity of such a project. Environmental and cultural destruction. Because the movement
0: uh, that started at the beginning of 2003, when Vedanta came to uh, New for bauxite mining and for alumina plant, then I went there. Because my, our, just uh, my involvement is that how to look at what are there at least. When a company comes to mining or to destroy forest or to take something else, what are the resources that we have, whether it belongs to people or not, whether it has uh, uh, the very uh, non renewable resources or not. So I came to know that then we find in uh, in Nyomagiri that Neomagiri is a, is a very ecological or very sensitive spot of Eastern Ghats in India and it has given birth two rivers like uh, Nagavali and Bansadhara but it two prominent rivers it will uh, not only serve Odisha but also to andhra pradesh so both not only the it is the place of tribals but also non-tribals uh, that is agricultural economy non tribal economic economy is dependent uh, on these two rivers so these two rivers has uh, many many uh, economic and uh, social and cultural contribution uh, so that it first uh, that river should be protected from mining another is biodiversity and uh, there are rare species of uh, uh, floral fauna and i think and above all these that the tribals, the vulnerable tribals like dangrias and uh, kutiyas and dharnias three uh, <laughs> tribes more importantly, uh, they, they reside uh, below the Niamgri and also on the hills area, especially the Dungriyas are living on the top of the hills. They have 112 villages, hamlets and villages. I think that once the mining takes place, then everything will destroyed. The resources will be depleted, water sources will be depleted and the deep forest and biodiversity will be destroyed. And all naturally, the natural habitats will be also affected severely. And the people, especially the Dangurias and the Dharaniyas, Kutiyas, they have to suffer.
1: Listening to the Nagrik podcast. Nagrik podcasts are produced by Nagrik Open Civic Learning, which is an initiative to radically decrease the cost of learning to participate in public life by placing quality learning materials in the public domain. Nagrik's first set of learning materials are meant for those who want to use the tools of law and advocacy to advance the interests of India's forest dwelling communities. If you visit nagriklearning.com, that is, dot com, you can register and learn from high quality videos, reading materials, and practice questions about all the laws you've heard about so far in this podcast, including the Forest Conservation Act, the PESA, and the Forest Rights Act. Remember, these materials are not only free, they are open source, meaning that if you feel compelled to download them and use them elsewhere, such as in a classroom or just translate them, you don't require anyone's permission. Now, to return to the Nyamgari Hills, another voice we are going to hear from a lot in this podcast is that of Madhuri Karak, the anthropologist who is now in Washington DC as a Mellon American Council of Learned Societies Society's public fellow. She completed 16 months of ethnographic fieldwork in the rayagada and Kalahandi districts of Odisha as part of her PhD dissertation on resource extraction and development in these bauxite-rich mountains. When she arrived, 10 years had passed since Prafula Samantra saw the advertisement in the newspaper and the Supreme Court of India had just held that plans for the bauxite mine could not go forward without the consent of the region's Gram Sabhas.
4: So I'm Bengali and when I first went to Niamgiri in 2013, I actually didn't speak Odia at all and right till the end of my fieldwork i would say 2016 i would you know get teased by how my Oriya remained very bengali inflected and i would say i learned the adivasi dialect kui very very minimally i you know converse with the children uh which you know gives you a sense of where i was with uh, my dialect language learning so I, you know, went to New Hungary in 2013. This was going to be a pilot exploration where, you know, I really wanted to get a sense of whether the questions I had in my head made any sense on the ground, right? And this was, of course, the summer of the referendum or what, you know, the Indian press at the time was touting as India's first environmental referendum, and you know, I arrived in early July, and I still remember the first gram sabha was held on July seventeenth in uh, Serkapadi village in um, Raigara district, and of course, it was you know going to be held in twelve villages across Raigara and Kalahandi. And what I, you know, immediately realized was the multiplicity of political actors on the ground, you know, because when you're obsessively following a social movement far away, you know, sitting in Calcutta or Delhi or, in my case, for a few years in New York, the story of the struggle, you know, had come to seem almost seamless, right? In in a sense, it is the protagonists are fairly clear cut in that you know there is the mining company there are the adivasi dalit and obc forest dwelling communities who are threatened with displacement and then there is the community organization which uh, has been formed to resist the imminent dispossession right and overarchingly you are given this uh consolidation of a resource extraction oriented development model and how that is increasingly getting entrenched in our country's mineral rich adivasi majority hinterland right so that's sort of the story arc that i went into the field with and i thought okay let's see how it really is i get off the train in Munigura after a 17-hour train ride from Calcutta, which is, you know, where my parents live. And, you know, TLDR version is that that was not quite the case, right? And Nyamgiri departs, I think, from, you know, this cast of usual characters and the David versus Goliath story that I just painted I would say, in three main ways. So, you know, I think the first one, which, you know, your listeners might be fairly familiar with, would be that a very committed group of urban activists had been leading the charge against Vedanta and the court system and had been pushing a series of PILs through Orisha's lower courts right up to the Supreme Court with, you know, really remarkable results. So this had been something that was, you know, going on since 2003.
1: Who were these urban activists leading the charge against the proposed mine in various legal fora? One of them was R. Sridhar, a former geologist with the Oil and Natural Gas Corporation of India, who has for several decades now worked on environmental issues with mining affected and displaced communities. He already knew prafilla Samantra, and the two of them already had a history of working together
5: uh, there's a alliance called minds minerals and people right so we have been uh, there from 1999 as an alliance but uh, you know some of us uh, who were co-founders of this alliance uh, like environ express Samatha, Say uh, we had been working on uh, mining issues uh, from uh, 80s and in fact from 90s when the Samata judgment came up. You know, so essentially when the refinery, the alumina refinery was uh, being established, uh, uh, the Kumti Maji, the uh, the uh, Putia Pond people in the refinery area. Of Lanziger, uh, they requested us to come and uh, visit, and uh, saying that uh, they are being pushed to, you know, uh, rapidly the land is being acquired, and uh, and uh, they have been uh, given houses which are like cages for them, and uh, how we could help them. So uh, that's how we went to you know, Lanzigir. Right. So the first visit was made by me and Ravi Pragada to Lanjigar, and uh, before that we had a group which was uh, based in uh, raigada uh, whom we asked them to go and have a visit and uh, look at what was happening. And then they told us that you know the threat is of Nyamgiri also, and therefore uh, it's important that we go and visit, even though you know like. Per se, at that point of time, the refinery was not in the mines, minerals and people's agenda, right? So, we were essentially groups which were working on looking at uh, mining issues per se. So, uh, we went there, then we realized that, you know, uh, this could be a major kind of a problem for the people in that area. And then uh, also, you know, we learned from uh, other friends that, you know, this was an uh, area which was uh, uh, likely to be an elephant reserve at some point of time and, you know, uh, and uh, also that, you know, both the, uh, on the foothills of Nyamgiri, the Putiyakon and uh, the, uh, you know, eventually the, uh, Dongria Cone, both will be affected by this project. So, we, uh, those days there was, you uh, no, still very active, the uh, Central Empowered Committee of the Supreme Court, which is looking on forest clearance. So, actually, uh, like, uh, if you recall, the Godavarman case said that any, any kind of, you know, whether it was legally forest or not, anything that actually was a forest, so uh, what was uh, you know, the uh, forest area in uh, what we thought those technically forest area also and uh, where they had already started the uh, you know the ropeway you know, the foundation for the ropeway to uh, bring the uh, bauxite from niyamgiri which they had started uh, in lanjigarh and uh, also some of this, you know, what village forest, the uh, what uh, uh, the common lands, you know, in the village, which had uh, shrubs and other things, you know. So that also constituted. So we thought that uh, we should. Uh, uh, th- there is also a guideline that says that if there is forest land and non-forest land. That uh, you shouldn't uh, start work unless you get a forest clearance. Otherwise, no, it's like a faint complaint. You just then start pushing for the forest clearance. So based on that, uh, we decided that we should file a case and file a petition in the Central Empowered Committee on the forest issue. Uh, but we knew that, you know, given the kind of investment and the scale of investment uh you know perhaps uh, just addressing on this forest issue may not work uh, then you know there were also other issues related to water and uh, other things so since Environics has a background of working on issues on water resources and environmental issues, we said we'll we'll choose that kind of a focus uh mid later part of two thousand and three uh so, what happened was, uh, uh, the other people also, because uh, we know other people, like Vishwajit Mohanty was the other petitioner, and uh, Lokshakti Abhyan, Prasila Samantre, they're all uh, people who, whom we have known for years, you know. So, what we thought was, it might be worthwhile that given the strength of each of the organizations, we'll, uh, we'll file three different petitions. One looking at uh, the use of forests and the impact on water resources, uh, which was my petition. The one by Vishwajit Mishra was on Mm -hmm. the wildlife issues, uh, his uh, society, Orissa Wildlife Protection Society. And then the third one was on uh, the impacts on the tribals, which was the Mm Lok Jansharki, or Rafa Nasa
1: At around the same time that this group of activists was plotting a multi-pronged legal challenge to the mine, there was growing awareness in the region about the potential consequences of mining activity. The senior journalist Nitin Sethi, who was recently awarded the Investigative Journalism Award given by the Asian College of Journalism, was at that time among those who were observing this grassroots mobilization.
6: We know that there were several local political actors that had also stepped in uh, and the community leaders were very actively engaged in uh, strategizing what would be the best route. I think this is also a period where a lot of other areas you were seeing different kinds of uh, opposition by communities. And a range of questions that one could, I remember running through those uh, different geographies was preventing anything from turning violent. And uh, what forms of protest one could undertake without uh, letting the situation turn violent or violence being undertaken by anyone from the communities, even as a reaction at the last thing. I think what was incredible was the fact that. the community decided to step out of its comfort zones, uh, I think encouraged by the fact that there were other supporting actors on the ground, uh, that it came out and uh, began doing roadblocks, protests, block level, etc. that we saw. Uh, I think the stories and uh, reports that came out were far lesser than what happened simply because uh, while journalists at the local level and other people reported, uh, it wasn't something that got a a nationwide attention till much later. There was a lot of, um, I would say, small level action compared to what we know of now that was undertaken to slowly, hopefully, uh, at that time, which was just a hope of creating a rubric of defense against the state ramrodding through. And creating enough political mobilization also indicating that the political mobilization was, uh, had strength, had support and was resilient. And I think uh, part of that became, part of that was a creation, part of that in some sense was a fiction, part of it was real. And it seemed to have then boiled over into something bigger as this episode progressed.
4: Because this region is a scheduled area the sort of oresha government has its own agencies right so the one specific to the Dongria kond is the Dongria kond development agency you know which sort of is a parastatal organization that comes out of their tribal affairs department And so, you know, that agency was often the primary conduit through which, you know, state benefits would percolate down to the community. And, you know, even now, I've heard sort of statements from both agency personnel, but also... NGOs that, you know, started operating in the Nyamdiri area, I would say, even before the anti-mining movement had any legs, where they would say that, you know, this this whole area that you're seeing now, shops, you know, restaurants, well, restaurant might be an exaggeration, you know, tiffin shops, none of this existed, right? It was very difficult to actually access um, the Dongria and Kutiakon, the communities. And what, Essentially, developed was the people who lived in the higher slopes and the Kutya who tended to be clustered in the plains area. Right? So, the hills versus plains binary is often what structured the social movement going forward. So if you ask movement leaders they would say that you know the dongriakon community who were sort of isolated up in the hilltops were very late in joining the movement right because they felt that okay if the refinery is being built perhaps the box side is going to come from elsewhere, right? That somehow this is not going to involve us directly. And most of the preliminary preliminary mobilization became isolated in the plains area. So, you know, around the villages, around Lanji Gard. And, you know, what essentially happened is that organizations from other parts of Orisha started taking an interest in Neyamgiri and, you know, started, you know, pretty much sending these emissaries to try and, you know, mobilize people, get them organized, get them to, you know, just submit uh, requests for information to the BDO. Um... Link up with the efforts that were already underway in the city, so it was very much a staggered process where what was happening in the city didn't immediately have its you know mirror image um, playing out in Nyamgiri itself.
1: While it may be a stretch to say that they were coordinated, there certainly was communication between the mobilization at the grassroots and the activists planning legal strategy. The political actions taken by the tribal groups also attracted the support of international civil society groups, such as Survival International, which is a group that works to ensure respect and human rights for tribal peoples. R. tells us now about how coalitions were forming at local, national and international levels.
5: Kumti Maji, whom we lost recently, uh, like Kumti Maji was the person who took us around and you know, showed us everything. Then. There were people, you know, uh, Dambu Puska. Many of them were. You know. Then, uh, then what happened was there was a period when, you know, my personal going to the field was, uh, you know, was seen as something that I was going and provoking, and it might have had impact on the case. So, but by the time there were a lot of international agencies which were willing to go there and we could uh, connect them with local journalists, then local lawyers, uh, like uh, I think a lot of contribution in terms of our research came from Ramesh, gopalakrishnan Amnesty, uh, who' was the senior researcher with Amnesty, and who brought up, brought out a series of reports on on uh, Neemhi. Uh, and the you know, Vedanta's uh, activities there. Then uh, dungaria cones being you know the kind of uh, uh, what here now it is uh, now they have changed the primitive tribal uh, this thing to you know, particularly vulnerable tribal groups. Uh, the Survival International also came in. So there was a lot of uh, international uh, interest, which also you know brought in a lot more. Uh, research inputs which we could use in the
4: report right so i mentioned the kashipur movement earlier so a bunch of uh, kashipur activists actually in the early days got very active and decided to band together and come to nyamgri and that is critical because again kashipur they are cones as well right they speak kui as well and Even though you had, you know, Odisha anti-mining activists who had, you know, been walking in Gandhamardan, who had been walking in Titlagarh, in other places, while they were, you know, congregating, the catch or the challenge was often that, you know, they weren't Adivasis themselves, and so they needed um, Kashipur leadership to, you know, kind of come in and help with building those bridges between the efforts in other parts of orisha in the cities and then you know the last mile was of course getting the dongria themselves involved right and getting them to kind of acknowledge that this um, mining impetus was not going to just stay limited to Lanjigar, right and once they started building the I, th- I think a you know picture here might have been helpful but basically they started building this um sort of uh, like a pulley system where you know the a structure that was going to carry the mined bauxite from the hilltop to the plains area refinery right and once that structure started getting built, right, and slowly started sort of crawling up the hills, the Dongrias, you know, began realizing that, you know, this was something that they couldn't just stay out of. So a lot of effort was actually made to create that community that, you know, you and I were encountering um, in the newspaper. And what, you know, became the Niyamgiri Shura Samiti much later, right, and is still being led by Domriakon, the elders was, you know, something that had to be cobbled together over time once, you know, all the constituencies who were going to be affected by mining could be effectively brought to the table, right? And, you know, I should also mention here the land occupation movement that a section of the CPIML was leading at the time in the plains area, right? So the Lok Shakti Abhiyan was a youth, is a youth um, component of the CPIML in Orisha. And, you know, they were leading this land occupation uh, movement of, you know, Banjar land, in uh, a couple of uh, panchayats in uh, Munigura block. And, you know, they got involved because they quickly realized, you know, how the plains area was going to be impacted. You know, so they brought their folks in and, you know, the Kui-speaking members of the communities then started being, bringing the Dongrias in. And historically, again, the hills and the plains have been kind of separated right both geographically as well as culturally and you know you see this in all parts of the world where the hills residing indigenous uh, communities tend to be a little more isolated from you know markets from you know the cash economy tend to be less fluent in whatever the mainstream local language is And, you know, in Yungri, that is no exception. So I think that geographical factor did play a part in how, you know, challenging it was to actually build that anti-mining coalition into the community that, you know, you and I um, see today.
0: So then we decided that how to make a people's movement vibrant. There are uh, local our uh, social activities leaders, and we together we try to make people conscious. First, we fought that uh, uh, for not to allow alumina plant because, because the Dangurias were living on top hill, they did not know what is happening. Even they did not believe that somebody was coming to take their land to take their forest they did not believe for two years that uh, the tribals at the foothill of the Niyamgiri that they organized uh, and we people make all these things that uh, uh, inform that when these companies coming they will displace the people they will uh, mining they will uh, also uh, use the water they will pollute the water everything then they, Tribals, they said that uh, this is our right. How can they take our land, our that something? So then, two years uh, when we uh, uh, just uh, uh, filed. Uh, I along with the two activities. That is one is uh, Siddhar from <coughs> Delhi. That is uh, uh, and, and another is the uh, friend of ours, Vishudit uh, uh, Mahanti of. Food. Wild, uh, wild protect society, wildlife society. So three, and I, I myself on behalf of uh, people's movement and uh, in the name of Lokshetya Bhijan, we went to Supreme Court's Central Empower Committee, which is expert committee, not to allow mining in Niyamgiri. What kind of actions did the you know did the coalition take to to, to sustain the community? I
6: mean. Um, ordinarily when you talk of political organization there is you know there are the meetings the gatherings you know the the demonstrations uh, what were the you know what were the acts that
5: uh, they were
4: doing mean all of the above what is uh, of note here is that you know given that the Lanjigar refinery had been built partly on illegally encroached upon land, they the community there, and these are mostly Kutiakons and you know Dalit and OBC communities. So initially they ended up, you know, just organizing these large demonstrations outside the refinery. Um, which ended up, you know, getting just violently dispersed. The mining company ended up, you know, using police. Um, The local government got involved. So that initial phase was, you know, very violently repressed. The leadership was, you know, imprisoned. So even as, you know, this was happening, The earlier, you know, leaders that I mentioned, the Kashipur, uh, Kui-speaking leaders who were also at this time active in Nyamgri, were simultaneously, you know, walking. And, you know, distances in Nyamgri can be huge. So from, say, Lanjigar to walk up to a hill's hamlet, right, that is majority Dongria would take you anywhere between three to four hours, right? So this is a uh, very, very physically demanding mobilizing work, right? So, you know, you'd have to sometimes overnight, you know, just uh, stop and, you know, invite the hills residing dongrias down make sure that they participated in the mobilization you know do real-time translations because often you know they were speaking in odia at rallies which you know the dongria didn't always necessarily understand and what quickly you know became apparent was that you know there needed to be a less localized version of these demonstrations and protests and rallies, right? And so you have the folks at Survival International who at this time are also just, you know, really amping up their efforts on making the claim that this is, that Niamgiri is in fact a case of, you know, indigenous dispossession, that this is akin to the kind of violence that indigenous peoples are facing, you know, across the world. And, um, you know, that's also the same time when the film Avatar gets released, the James Cameron blockbuster. So you have um, survival activists dressed up as, you know, the Na'vi standing outside the British Parliament outside the Vedanta offices in London with, you know, signboards saying, you know, save, you know, the real Avatar tribe. So sort of making the argument that, you know, you, we don't have to go so far as Pandora, right? That this experience of dislocation and dispossession is in fact playing out real time in Nyamgiri. So the tendrils of, you know, the mobilization, the actions sort of really, it's, you know, exactly this period that, you know, it sort of jumps scales and uh, you have efforts at all levels kind of really reaching a crescendo.
5: So the dynamics of Indian uh, administration is such that, you know, there are constantly changes taking place. Uh, So, you know, there is nothing that community as a thing learns but you know they they definitely know if there is a public hearing if there is a if there is some you know uh, some incident locally whether it's an accident or something like that unless they join hands and create a big uh, you know kind of a, a issue around it you uh, know basic compensation is also not obtained. for instance if somebody is hurt or something like that or Somebody dies, you know. You just don't take the dead body. You sit there and say, uh, like, you sign off on compensations and things like that. So, uh, so uh, then there have been, you know, some very nasty things that the company and the administration together have done, which have uh, which have been agitated in the National Human Rights Commission, but uh, have really not been, you know, taken. cognizance by bigger courts. Uh, Like, for instance, you know, uh, they jailed five women uh, uh, who were in lockup for almost a month Mm -hmm. and uh, among them, one who was carrying a lactating, you know, kind of child, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, simply because they demanded uh, some, their pending wages from the Uh, Pending wages from the contractor, Vedanta's contractor and these people filed a false case against them saying that they stole some 63 tons of steel and aluminum and all that. So like that, then uh, there was uh, one of the uh, villages that was uh, not allowing them to make uh, the boundary wall so that they can go to their grazing field. uh, uh, within the area that was acquired, because the government had said that you know all this grazing land still uh, access must be there to them. but what they did was they rounded up all the young people and uh, put them in the lockup and uh, when they when the local uh, advocates got to release them uh, instead of releasing them, they just put them in a bus and took them to Puri, saying that you know. Now you have to be kind of uh, what should the current now, now that you have been in jail, you have all got to be cleansed of, in Puri and uh, no. so kept them away for three, four days and then in uh, the meantime built the compound wall. So these these are there were things on uh, of such kind of things which local people then later on joined to
6: agitate and uh, you know, while a lot of societies and communities when they try and prevent usurpation of their lands or clans that they claim to be theirs, uh, one tends to notice the physical actions that they undertake uh, quite easily because these are the most visible uh, form of protests and can be recorded quickly. But the, to my mind, the furtiveness with which the community leaders would attend meetings, engage look at record making processes, think of what records in terms of uh, paperwork needed to be done uh, for a community, which one at one hand we say is very disconnected from the workings of a state in in the sense that we work now. And then at the same level, you imagine that community also finding a leadership, which is quickly learning, what it would take in a very bureaucratic technical manner to take on the state operators. And I think that the, if one was to go back and just look around saying say, how many times the community leaders would end up meeting different actors, mm-hmm. engaging with them on phone conversations, physically attending meetings of different things, negotiating between the different agencies that were coming to them as well as individuals that were coming to them to either offer help or to dissuade them from protesting that level of engagement, uh, for me was to my mind even now remains, uh, quite incredible that they saw an emergency and they responded to that emergency with, uh, building a completely new, uh, engagement with the rest of the world. What I am aware of in some sense, and this is again, um, It was not new to this, that it was not ingenuous of this community to do it. We've seen it in elsewhere. But it was fascinating to see that when you imagine eventually this community is portrayed in public spaces by those either defending the rights of the community or otherwise as so called less privileged, very insecure set of individuals or community that needs to be protected from depredatory uh, impacts of development and particular large corporates as the face of it. You also see on the other hand, the, what a friend of mine, uh, Conjay Barbara calls the cunningness of the underdog, where even with limited resources, with your are back to the wall, the community is able to suss out what and who are their allies and is able to quickly map what benefits different actors brought to their own struggle and utilize them uh, amongst themselves, re-strategize to work with these different actors. So you had international NGOs wanting to be part of what the community was doing. You had Indian NGOs, civil society actors being there. You had corporate influence of different kinds. You had state actors of several kinds. And the ability of a community with very, very limited resources, uh, supposedly immensely little information, economics tells us uh, information is power and the society with very limited information on how the rest of the legal processes in the world and the state is operating to uh, separate them from the lands still being able to drum up an intelligent way of responding to the pressures i think to me that uh, is extremely valuable more than um, even if somebody was to retrospectively study and say Or how did they uh, manage to respond? It's the response is perhaps not in terms of how they created different uh, institutional responses as society, as a community. How they set up a different kind of leadership, whether new individuals came up uh, from the traditional leadership to take uh, precedence, but it was actually something that we do not very often recognize, uh, the resilience of small marginal communities to adapt and very quickly um, figure out what's the best within the limited space that they have. I think the Dongleakon community again was able to show us that rather well.
1: Preparations for the mine were, in the meantime, underway. As you learnt earlier in this podcast, if forest land was to be used for mining activity, then under the Forest Conservation Act, the permission of the central government was necessary. At that time, however, those decisions were being taken through a committee at the Ministry of Environment and Forests, which was being monitored by a bench of the Indian Supreme Court dedicated to hearing matters related to forests. This Central Empowered Committee would become the first legal forum where the question of the mine at Nyamgadi Hills was litigated. In March 2003, Vedanta Alumina Limited or VAL, a subsidiary of the UK-based Vedanta Resources, applied to the MOEF for the approval of an alumina refinery project in Lanjigat Tehsil in Kalahandi district. It had also submitted a separate application for a bauxite mining project in the nearby Nyamgari Hills. Both were part of a broader joint venture between the state's Orissa Mining Corporation and VAL. Clearance for the alumina refinery was granted by the MOEF in September 2004. Before clearance was given for the mining part of the project, however, the Central Empowered Committee received several petitions against both, claiming that they would destroy the traditional way of life of the Dongria Kond people who are spiritually and culturally attached to the Nyamgari Hills. <laughs> listening to the sounds of Adivasi women line dancing at the annual Niyamgari Parab, the main festival of the tribes of Niyamgari that the anthropologist Madhuri Karak, who we heard from previously in this episode, attended in the February of 2015. The song in the Kui dialect describes all the riches that Raja provides Niyamgari's residents with – water, wind, soil and community. How did these communities of the Niyamgari Hills interact with the legal and political processes happening far, far away?
4: You know, I have also pursued this line of questioning where, you know, i sort of asked, you know, do you know that, you know, this was going on in London or that, you know, this really um, successful mobilization on your behalf was, you know, happening internationally and it's a little bit like, well, okay, but we were being beaten by the police here while that was happening. So what, right? And I think the indigeneity bit is a little complicated because Bridge if you ask, you know, is there a connection between the mountains and how you see yourself, your identity, who you are, you know, it's a very obvious question. like the answer is yes always I mean why are you asking me you know this is like rain falls from the sky and then goes downhill um, form of question but what I think did happen particularly in the environmental referendum was a concerted effort to use that framing more explicitly in how cones talk about themselves right so they were not just saying that you know we eat the fruits and you know harvest the ginger and you know drink from the streams but rather you know going that extra mile um to make that legible connection and say that yes, we also worship the mountain, the stream, the trees, and so on and so forth. So, which is not to say that they don't, but I think the problem with, you know, the kind of legal framing that the case ended up getting at the Supreme Court was that, you know, the legal the urban middle class audience you know who was following this case wouldn't just be satisfied by hearing that you know we live from this land right they needed to explicitly be made to see how the connection between living and sacred attachment was one and the same and it had to be paused as such
6: We've seen it and heard of it also, and reported at times as journalists. Is that the community uh, from by inputs from various other stakeholders, people interested in the issue, began to form a visual representation of who they were and of their claim over the land. So uh, the process of where the community claimed its spirit lived to create a visual spectacle to say that this is where they go and pray annually and therefore the spirit resides on top of the hill that was to be mined. Uh, To my mind was a strategic requirement that the community woke up to around 2007. We know from past records that the community did pray to the spirits in different ways. Some villages did, some didn't. But the organized, annual, ritualistic representation of that belief system uh, began somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, in 2007. And it was, in some sense, uh, a very desperate attempt by a community to create evidence in the form that the evidence would be accepted by legal processes. In this case, creation of visual evidence, so to say, to show that uh, a spiritual system actually was bestowed and was essential to how the mountain and the communities lived together. Uh, again, if you look at animistic systems and other spiritual systems which depend on nature as spirits and forces, uh, such one of the key characteristics in many of these are that the spirit system does not take a visual or a physical form. Uh, but here, to provide legal evidence of their own spiritual system, a method had to be created of evidence building. And I think that process began in 2007. And thereon, it also fructified how the community would present itself. Uh, in legal forums or those holding agency on behalf of the communities would present themselves in legal forums of what the community was, what it did, and therefore how it could justify its rights over the lands.
4: Here, I think taking on a comparative lens can be very instructive. My sociologist colleague, Minati Dash, has actually written very evocatively about how niyamgiri's neighboring anti mining movement kashipur um experienced a dramatic rise and yet ended up fragmenting right in the face of utkal alumina's very divisive um repressive tactics and you know she writes how in kashipur the rhetoric around mobilization was never about indigeneity in the way that it became the dominant narrative in Nyam-Giri. so by indigeneity here, I'm referring to you know Kohn's sacred attachment to land, how you know Nyamgiri's mountains, flora, streams, fruits um, are Kohn's deities, right? And you know Raj Shri Chandra comes to mind. You know she's written how sort of attaching these you know very spiritual caveats to the implementation of the Forest Rights Act, in fact, actually makes it really difficult to take that landmark judgment out of its 2014 context and then use as a precedent in um, future instances of dispossession.
0: Oh, we, we also say that the uh, people's movement must be, uh, local uh, locality leadership must be strengthened and we should not intervene uh, in, in those decisions, brave decisions, so they must be independent. We, we also try to strengthen their independence and autonomy of uh, local people's movement and then <coughs> so uh, basically never encourage also go to the court of law and once it so we decided that the movement should not go because once uh, we go there suppose uh, we get a uh, adverse uh, judgment it will uh, hamper the movement the people's uh, confidence will be lost so <coughs> I as a um, sympathizer, as a an as associate and in name of uh, my our organization's people's forum that is uh vision I went to the Supreme uh, Supreme Court's expert Committee that the Central Empower Committee to file this uh, petition not to have, have mining. Then it started. I think uh, that at the same time um, the people's movement was strengthened, Nyamgiri Surakya Samiti was formed. And the basically the local leadership was strengthened and rallied rallies everything that went to as it was uh, with all uh, support to uh, many people, many political political people means those opposed globalization like Ravi Rai, uh, who was uh, the Lok Sabha uh, speaker at the uh, time and was this great socialist leader, a socialist thinker like uh, uh, Kishan a 62 uh, um, parliament member. At that time, and he, he was an uh, um, um, ex-parliament member, but he was a socialist leader, Manman a Gandhian. So all these people get, came to Nyamagiri to support this movement. So that type of uh, this time also we uh, and like Bandana Shiva, all these people came um, and uh, started uh, all these studies report, many research report also came in, uh, came out with our uh, movement's favor that the Neomangiri must be protected. So in that way, we, we, we spread this message that Niyamgiri saved Niyamgiri, and support came in to be the Niyamgiri people. And at the same time, when the Supreme Court's Empower Committee unanimously recommended not to mining, to protect resources to Niyamgiri because of um, ecological and biodiversity and the river system all these things are necessary and as well as also the natural habitat of uh, those uh, tribals, especially the Dongrias, that must be protected and as a constitutional uh, obligation of the government the state is also to protect them and then um, we, we thought that we got some achievement because, because we got moral strength because of Central uh, central committee of supreme court gave power of New
1: that, that was a very strong. Indeed, in September 2005, the CEC recommended to the Supreme Court of India to revoke the clearance that had been given for the Illumina refinery. In 2007, the Supreme Court denied all clearances to the joint venture, basing its decision in part on Vedanta's poor international reputation. This was partly a consequence of the international campaign against the bauxite mine that would displace a particularly vulnerable tribal group.
6: The full ownership of the company lay in uh, the mothership in some sense registered in UK. Uh, Therefore, it gave an opportunity to civil society actors to also look at uh, in some sense, first moral shaming of the um, institution in UK or the company registered in UK. And two, then look at shareholder and other legal aspects of whether the mothership could be held responsible for the activities of its uh, subsidiaries in India. Um, this took on various forms where uh, there were international NGOs attempting to do this in UK itself, uh, talking to agencies in the UK and looking at legal uh, spaces available within the United Kingdom laws of whether the company could be held responsible. It was also done by uh, reaching out to minority and other shareholders of the company, uh, public company in UK and trying to persuade through them uh, the management, uh, which is a it was, and it remains a promoter driven company, but to influence the management to step back. We also know that while, this activity was going on, uh, a very critical role was also played in how uh, perhaps this company's relationships existed and changed with different political parties in India and uh, segments of these political parties as well. We know uh, that the group had uh, relationships running across the two major national parties, BJP and Congress, we knew uh, now from published records that say key leaders of Congress were, when they were not in government, employed by the party as their legal advisors and paid pretty decent sums, I would not say uh, bizarre sums, but pretty decent sums to work as their lawyers. And we know that the company would donate. Funds uh, to political parties, which later uh, became visible as an illegal activity. And both uh, the Congress and BJP, this is much later, acted to retrospectively legalize uh, donations it was receiving from this foreign company. Uh, To my mind, what was fascinating was also how civil society action was able to, and different stakeholders were able to see that. The political influences that this company drew uh, were varying and changing with time. And they were able to, in some ways, act upon this, reach out to political actors that they thought uh, were not influenced directly by the company and would take a relatively more independent view, even within parties that the company seemed to patronize. Um, I think that worked uh, to a greater extent than. the influence put by reaching out to the mother company abroad and its shareholders abroad, or for legal, looking for legal recourse in the UK system to say whether the company could be held liable for its uh, subsidiaries' actions on human rights and other issues in India.
4: Between I would say 2008 and 2010, you had everything and everyone from you know the Church of England. The government of Norway, British celebrities like you know Mick Jagger, they were all talking about this Indian tribe, the Dongria Kond, and their battle against bauxite mining on the Kond's sacred ancestral lands. So, if you know, I and I have actually done this in 2013. You know, when I go to Munigoda which is, you know, the sort of train uh, station in Raigara district that's, you know, easiest uh, to access the mountains from. Um, And I ask an average Kohn on their way to, you know, the Thursday Heart, if they have, you know, been aware of these international efforts on their behalf, I mean, you know, they'd laugh, and, and they did laugh. And Yeah, the work done by Survival International Amnesty and to an extent even Action Aid to raise the stature of the issue was really, really critical.
5: It was around that time that we had also... uh... The petition to the Norwegian Ethics Council, you know, to withdraw uh, the Norwegian pension fund investments from from them. So when uh, the news about you know the Norwegian pension fund withdrawing because there were environmental and human rights violations and other things, uh, the the court did take cognizance, saying that you know there are newspaper reports saying that uh, you know. The company has been violating, and financials are withdrawing. Uh, but uh, eventually, the 2008 judgment essentially said that, uh, like, uh, if they were going to, you know, set aside 10 crores per year or 5% of the profits, uh, and with uh, several conditions, the project can go ahead. But uh, there was one last sentence in that judgment that said uh, which will be according to law, right? That the project can go go ahead according as per the law.
1: The Supreme Court's order in 2007 was not really good news for the communities. Even though it had revoked all prior clearances, it also charted out a path for Sterilite Industries, a successor of V L and another Vedanta subsidiary, to be granted these clearances. These were a set of conditions relating to the rehabilitation of project affected families, wildlife conservation and just land acquisition. In fact, Sterilite resubmitted its proposal and in 2008, the Supreme Court granted its clearance for the bauxite mining project. But it also said that the MOEF, the Union Ministry for Environment and Forests, also had to grant its approval in accordance with the law. The struggle to save Niyamgiri had to continue. On May 7th, 2008, hundreds of Dongriyakon marched through Bhubaneswar, the state capital of Odisha, and staged a sit-down protest on Mahatma Gandhi Street, which leads to the state assembly. On October 20th, hundreds of Dongriya Kone people danced and sang as they marched along the streets of Bhubaneswar, armed with their traditional weapons. Some part of the struggle was also carried out in the international arena. The Norwegian Pension Fund, and the Church of England were among the major organizations reconsidering their investments in Vedanta, citing concerns about its conduct in relation to the Niyamgiri Hills. Still listening to the Nagrik podcast. My name is Aju John, and on this podcast, we are learning about the struggle to save Niamgri, a grassroots movement of tribal communities, a challenge at the country's highest court, and an international advocacy campaign. Nagrik podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. In previous episodes, we have tried to learn, for example, about the revolt of the Varli Adivasis and about the Chipko movement. If you haven't listened to these episodes but would like to do so now, just search for Nagrik Podcast on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you want to listen to them. Nagrik Podcasts are brought to you by Nagrik Open Civic Learning, which makes quality learning materials for public participation. Visit nagriklearning.com to learn about the governance of India's forests. After the Supreme Court said in 2008, that the Union Ministry of Environment and Forest would make a decision about the mine, Jairam Ramesh, who was the Union Minister in charge at that time, had to manage differences of opinion within the Congress-led UPA government. He appointed a four-member committee to study the issue. It was headed by the former bureaucrat N.C. Saxena and was tasked to determine whether to allow the diversion of forest land in the Niyamgiri Hills.
5: Because uh, by the time uh, 2010, eleven, uh, the Congress party also, you know, somehow felt that you know it was losing ground there. And so you know, they also, you know, like uh, you would remember this statement uh, in the context of Donguryakons that uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi made that he's the foot soldier of the tribals and they would uh, you know fight for their cause. And uh, their uh, you know, earlier MP from that place, charandas uh, he was also, uh, you know, quite opposed to the project at that point of time.
1: The NC Saxena committee's response in August of 2010 was unequivocal. I quote: "If mining is permitted on this site, it will not only be illegal, but it will also destroy one of the most sacred sites of the Kond primitive tribal groups." Its report said. It was of the firm view, it concluded, that allowing mining in the proposed mining lease area by depriving two primitive tribal groups of their rights over the proposed mining site in order to benefit a private company would shake the faith of the tribal people in the laws of the land which may have serious consequences for the security and well-being of the entire country. We were introduced to these laws earlier in the podcast. These are the Forest Rights Act of 2006 and the PESA both of them provide spaces and law for forest dwelling communities to participate in the governance of forests. The Forest Rights Act set up democratic procedures for decision-making at the level of settlements, with the Gram Sabha playing a central role. The Ministry of Environment and Forest followed the committee's recommendations and in August 2010 denied forest clearance for the project. The Orissa government, through the Orissa Mining Corporation, petitioned the Supreme Court to reverse this mining ban on Vedanta and to allow a six-fold expansion of the alumina refinery. In the landmark decision of April 18th, 2013, that we are already familiar with, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal and decreed that the Dongria Kond people would have, through their Gram Sabhas, a decisive say in the permission for Vedanta's mining project.
3: And so the court ordered the Gram Sabhas to be held under the supervision of the district collector with observers from uh, other places to ensure that the Gram Sabhas were held in a free and fair atmosphere. And the Gram uni- you know unanimously all passed resolutions saying they were, they were opposed to converting the forests into mines. And as a result of which the whole uh, uh, lease was cancelled. Uh, the Nyamgiri hills were saved from uh, being transferred into uh, Vedanta's hands and converted into a bauxite mine.
2: What's very important to remember about the Orissa Mining Corporation case is that it could have very easily fallen into the trap of becoming a case that relates only to the facts of that particular case. And uh, then remained restricted to providing relief to those 12 villages of the Gundungaryakuns. But what I find very interesting about the Nyamgiri case is that After the judgment was passed, immediately within one month, in fact, the case was cited by the Gujarat High Court in a very important judgment that the Gujarat High Court gave gave relating to the Forest Rights Act. And it has been picked up by different High Courts, different uh, uh, tribunals, different district courts, sometimes even magistrates courts, all over the country. And it has been used again and again, the legal principle Established by the Supreme Court that uh, a, a gram sabha of forest dwellers needs to be the one that decides how development happens in their forests. That legal principle has been picked up and has been applied over and over in many different kinds of fact situations, and in fact, in situations where different lo- very different laws are applicable. For instance, there's one uh, judgment which, uh, a more recent judgment, where the the uh, niyamgiri principle has been applied to an environmental clearance so uh, and the niyamgiri case was about forest clearances so this is a very interesting case i find the uh, the developments that have taken place subsequent to the niyamgiri judgment actually to be even more interesting because uh, now uh, because of wide publicity Uh, The Neongiri judgment is well known in all the tribal areas of the country. And uh, I don't think that the Supreme Court, when they were passing this judgment, realized that the tribal community was going to really pick this up and run with it the way that they have.
1: The judgment was indeed historic. And so was the social movement that took place in parallel to the legal proceedings, both aimed at preventing the unlawful acquisition of tribal lands for mining. While some aspects of the grassroots mobilization made it unique, such as the consistent support from other activists, the tribal claims to indigeneity, and the international attention, some other aspects were more prosaic.
4: Having, you know, pointed out the three ways in which, you know, we see the Niyangiri case sort of grow into the unique social movement that, you know, we now acknowledge it as, I would say that, you know, the angle that I go deepest into in my own dissertation research is a little different. So 2013 was, you know, when I did uh, some pilot work. And then I went back for about 15 months, 2014 to 2015. And what I sort of you know became really interested in was to dig into that, you know, overlooked agrarian distress aspect, right? Because in many ways, you know, Nyamgiri is not that different from other rural neglected parts of the country and you know it's really the sort of you know banal crises right like the low prices for crops the lack of cold storage facilities the sort of subtle push by extension agents towards cash crops like cotton like eucalyptus which you know were increasing the debt burden and the rise of, for example, landless, Adivasi wage workers in these fringe towns like Munigura, like Bishamkotak, like Lanjigarh, and how that, in fact, was beginning to shape Kond political subjectivity, yes, but also their response um, towards the larger anti-mining movement as a whole, right? So the other thing that, you know, I sort of encountered, ran into was this uh, topic that, you know, most Adivasi leaders would um, either say was besides the point or, you know, would say that it in fact directly undercut their point was, depending on who you ask, is the whole phenomena of seasonal Adivasi migration to South India, right? You still have young Domriya, Kutia, Dalit men from Niyamgiri going to, say, auto-mechanical shops in Trishur every summer, right? Um, During the downtime between harvest and planting. So I sort of got curious about how, you know, these young... Kutia, Dongria Dalit, women and men were sort of drawing on these experiences and how these were in fact feeding into their political ideas, what they were doing in terms of, you know, anti-mining, organizing. And that's what, you know, I spent my time there trying to understand. So you know, I would say that, you know, what's also sort of pertinent here is that, you know, many of these um, women and men had come of age precisely in this, you know, very tumultuous decade um, when, you know, Niangiri went from, you know, there's that time in Orisha where, you know, there were just anti-dispossession movements in every corner of that state, right? You have your you know Kashipur you have your Kalinganagar you have your Paradeep, your Titlagar, your Damanjori and so Niyamgiri was just one of those movements to being the og adivasi movement right where it's being flooded by outsiders there are just you know journalists photographers documentary filmmakers researchers like me um middlemen of all hue and from all sides of the conflict right Um, on the ground, just trying to get uh, a bite of the movement to uh, kind of take back um, to their place of work. And through all of this, you know, young people are engaging both with the content of the movement, but also with these diversely positioned actors who are kind of going in and out from the outside, as well as the actors who are embedded in place. And you know, what I learned and (laughs) I'm going to try to encompass what I learned here as uh, sort of succinctly as possible is that, you know, young people do develop a very keen sense of what the quote unquote right line is, right? Even as they are steeped in the contradictions that are just, you know, part and parcel of being Adivasi, being young and being in a place that has been subjected to historical, longstanding institutional neglect, right? And so, you know, to give you an example or two, um, it wasn't uncommon, say, to see how even someone who, you know, worked in Vedanta's alumina refinery in Lanjigarh as a security guard, right, um, lived in a village which often would have, you know, very strident anti-mining activists residing, right, in the same village, and where the young security guard in question would privately say that mining shouldn't happen, Even as he, you know, was landless himself, didn't have access to just, you know, other avenues of livelihood and had managed to wrangle um, ultimately a precarious position as a security guard at the refinery. Or, you know, I know activists themselves who have migrated to Kerala during um, say a summer when you know harvest hadn't gone well in search of work with clan members and had come back to Niyamgiri with even a greater sense of uh, how important it was to safeguard Niyamgiri from mining right so the contention often is that you know activists don't want to say that adivasis migrate because, you know, the outsider perception is that life in Nyamgri is so good, right? It's so attuned with the land, the mountains, the streams, that they don't need to seek livelihood off the land. Um, but, you know, migration is definitely a thing. But what happens is that, you know, young migrants will come back and say that, well... The outside, always in quotes, perhaps was good in that season, but that ultimately the forests, the hills, it was all theirs and it was all for free for theirs to have generationally. So I think often, you know, the movement as we perceive it from the outside, you know, there is a a desire to streamline rhetoric for the purpose of a unified message but i would you know argue that even as young people were you know going in different directions um in search of these precarious livelihoods that were often in contradiction with what we understand as you know the adivasi way of life were often, through those various detours, um, coming back and reaffirming why cones need to assert their generational right to Niyamgiri. And,
0: yeah. So, till Vedanta came to Niyamgiri, no government... Consider the development, they did not talk about development of tribals. So when they came, they say that we will develop everything for tribals. So our question is what development you will make, made? For last years, seventy years, you did not do anything. And when you are coming to take everything from this, and these people asked also, you know, then one tribal, uh, I remember this tribal, that is daising um, Machi. Asked the collector the time uh, uh, when the land was to be taken, he came to, for land, he asked. Who are you to take our land? You have not given anything to us. And it is it is it is our system. to depend upon this. What you will give us? The colored says so you will have TV, you will have a bike, you will have some money, then what our children will do. So that, that was a question oh, about and, and and also the people like the now leader like Lada Shikaka, tribal Danguria leader, Dadish they say that what you can give us? You have nothing. You can go and you oust us and you will throw us. And we will go somewhere, we will be some servant of somebody else. We will, um, um, you know, clean some um, pots and something. We are not educated. You can't give us any, even a job also, you can't give it. We have no schools. We have no educations. Till now I tell you that tribals are not been provided schools. No primary schools are there sufficiently and that was that there was three, four schools also that was withdrawn because of uh, uh, not sufficient students, but the right to education is also violated here. So the change, change means changes. the people became more and more right based that they become conscious about the law, law of the land, constitution, their rights and about the development, that development comes against their wills, That's, that is undemocratic. That is say, I mean, anybody can talk to them, they can explain better than me. Because they feel it that they are going, they are being forced. And the, and they they, they don't believe they want to accept the this paradigm of the development. That is that the capitalist development. So that is not related with them. They, they, they have any no participation with this development. So that that, 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 that is the change within them. To feel what the state is now state is a corporate police state they realize now. They say before Vedanta comes any company came before that he came we are within peace. Now we are not in peace they say and it is also natural it is also fact. Why they are not peace because every day the police arrange police camps CRP camps. Any you see some initially when we started the movement. There were no mousties, there was no mousties camp. After 2010, when our movement reached the peak, some uh, mousties uh, activities came there. So they have no relation with us. We also did not allow also them, because we believe in the democratic movement, let us not to disturb it. So they remain away from that, but the state and the police used this, that their presence, that this movement belongs to the it is proved to be wrong, it is not a fact. And, and, and also at any time they, they arrested some of the people, they arrested under the Maustice or activities. So in Nyamgiri, everybody is branded as an oxalite and Maoist. Even by people like me, they branded me that I am a, a supporter of Maustice. So I belong to, we believe we know that our ideal, our ideologies we believe, we say that Gandhi is our pathfinder. Dr. Ramalora, Zaprakas Nara, and all these people we believe in. But we say also that everything there should be a democratic judgment. Even suppose somebody becomes a Nakshal or Maoistis. Unless he does any violence, you can't punish them, you can't kill them. They have also a right to live in India as a democratic country, has democratic rights, to believe in some ideology. we meant for it. How can you kill them?
1: Odisha remains one of the large Indian states that fall below the national average for the proportion of people living below the poverty line. The scheduled tribes remain India's poorest people with 45.9% of their population falling in the lowest wealth bracket compared to 26.6% of the Scheduled Castes. Only 22.6% of Scheduled Tribes live where there is a latrine within the premises, whereas that figure is 46.9% for the overall population. Similarly, only 19.7% of Scheduled Tribes live where the source of water is located within the premises, whereas that number is 46.6% for the overall population. In August 2015, Vedanta announced the closure of an aluminum refinery it had preemptively built in anticipation of the mines opening. The Odisha Mining Corporation, acting alone this time, petitioned to mine the bauxite. But following an appeal from Prafula Samantra, R. Shrida, and others, the Supreme Court denied the petition in May 2016.
5: Because you know, some of these are very long-drawn. Today we are we are talking in 2020 and uh, you know. The refinery. I am still litigating in the tribunal. Uh, so from 2003, sometime in September, you know, like uh, I think a minimum of, um, of one to two months in my life every year has been going on dealing with uh, Vedanta.
1: That was the voice of Ashrithar. My name is Aju John, and this was the Nagrik podcast. This episode on the struggle to protect Niyamgiri was made possible by all the people who agreed to speak to me about it. So my thanks to Shamona Khanna, Sharachandra Lele, Madhuri Karak, R. Sridhar, Prafula Samantare and Nitin Sethi. Thanks also to the people at Oxfam India for supporting Nagarik Open Civic Learning. And finally, thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Nagarik Podcast if you haven't done so already because then you will be notified when we release another episode on yet another set of people who participated in public life and brought about meaningful change. Until next time, goodbye.